Please turn with me in your Bible to the book of Acts chapter 19. The book of Acts chapter 19. Today we are going to look a little bit more closely at Paul's time in the city of Ephesus. Uh, I, I have named the sermon something that I guess you could say is actually disputable. The title, I guess, is disputable, but I'm going to make a case for it at least. <clears throat> I'm going to call this sermon Paul's Most Extraordinary Ministry. Uh, Paul's Most Extraordinary Ministry. And I'm going to give uh, three points as we go through. I'll go ahead and tell you, to, tell you them to you right now. Uh, number one... <clears throat> Relentless teaching, number two, remarkable miracles, and number three, radical repentance. So Paul's most extraordinary ministry, Acts 19, verses 8 through 20, number one, relentless teaching, two, remarkable miracles, number three, radical repentance. And I'm going to go ahead and read last Sunday's text as well as this Sunday just to kind of get back into the flow of what's happening here. If you remember, this is the longest time that we have on record uh, of Paul's missionary journeys that he spends in one particular city. He spends about three years in Ephesus, and this is a major city, and so some really significant things happen. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and read through the text, and then we'll walk back through it piece by piece. This is God's Word, Acts 19, starting in verse 1. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about twelve men in all. And he entered the synagogue, and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus." This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that touch, had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, and the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who are now believers came confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them and found that it came to 50,000 pieces of silver, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. This is the word of the Lord, and let's look back at it now 
in, in some more detail. Th these first few verses have really gotten a hold of me the last couple of weeks because I just learned so much in, these pa in this passage that I did not know. Um, let's read them again, verses 8 through 10. Paul entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, Paul withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. The, this continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both uh, Jews and Greeks. I call this, this first point is relentless teaching, but th this really is an extraordinary time in Paul's life. So, if you've been following us through Acts, Paul does not normally get three months in the synagogue. Have you noticed this pattern? Usually he gets maybe three weeks in the synagogue before he's sort of run out of town with a few converts, but this time he gets three months. If you flip back to chapter 18, just for a moment, you remember Paul stopped by Ephesus very briefly on his way to Jerusalem on the end of his second missionary journey, verse 19 of Acts 18. They came to Ephesus, he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue, that's the same synagogue, and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to what? Stay long, stay for a longer period, he declined, but said, I will come again if God wills. I will return if God wills. So, Paul had an, an open door of invitation here at the synagogue. He had to leave, came back a number of months later, and the door was still open, and he was able to teach there for three uh, months. And then finally, they became uh, stubborn and continued in unbelief. You've, you've heard the Puritans saying, the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. Uh, the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay, that when a group of people hears the gospel over time, some people soften to it, like the wax that begins to melt under that hot sunlight. They begin to feel more of, a, more of a, uh, uh, an openness to the Lord Jesus. They begin to start to feel the weight of their sin, the beauty of salvation, the greatness of the gospel. The empty tomb becomes increasingly attractive, and over time, their heart is melted toward the Lord. They're, they are softened to the Lord, and they are one to Christ. And a number of Jews in this synagogue, that's exactly what happened, which is wonderful. But the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. Some hearts, in response to the heat and light of God's Word, over time begin to become less interested. They develop a disinterest. They, be, they develop a callousness toward the Word. They, they, they develop a lack of feeling. What once bothered them about their sin, what once made them intrigued about salvation and in the cross and, and atonement, becomes more and more something of fairy tale, something of mythology, something that just doesn't seem relevant to my life anymore. And as time goes on, some hearts become softer, some become harder. And listen, if it happened to the Apostle Paul, we should not be overly discouraged if it happens in our life too. When we present the gospel to those we love, and over time some are melted and some are hardened, we should not think, oh, I must be doing something terribly wrong here. This has always been the way it has been with the gospel. Jesus says, let me tell you a parable, not of one soil, just good soil, not a parable of two soils, a parable of how many? Four soils, and three of them are bad. Only one of those soils was good. Remember, the rocky soil looks promising and then doesn't have a root system because of the rocks and it dies out, and the thorny soil is choked by the cares and the pleasures of this world, and the bad soil, it's picked up, the past soil is picked away by the birds. Only the good soil bears fruit 30, 50, 100 times fold. And so we should… Now, now listen, when I say this, that is not to say that a very hard heart, a heart that has been hard for 30 years, for 50 years, cannot suddenly become soft to God's Word. The Holy Spirit can soften the hardest of hearts. So we should never give up hope. While, as Spurgeon used to say, while there is breath, there is hope. 
Don't ever rule someone out or, or take someone off your prayer list because it's been so long and they never responded. They've always been hard and maybe they're just the clay pot. They're not going to ever become soft. How do you know that? How do you not know that God in His goodness may use you or someone around you to win that person to Christ and all of a sudden a very hard-hearted individual may suddenly start showing a softening and they may be won to Christ. But Paul, over time, the majority response becomes hard-hearted and he is forced to leave the synagogue. And this is just a really unique moment. Look at verse 9. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, Paul withdrew from them what's he going to do? And took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. Um, the word Tyrannus, I learned, is the word for tyrant. Young children in the room may wonder, yes, Tyrannosaurus rex also has its, also has its root here as well. The word Tyrannus, tyrant. And um, th this man, Tyrannus, was either the owner of this particular school or hall, or he was a lecturer in this hall, something like that. And people have wondered, you know, who gave him that name? Was it his mother? You know, was he born? This looks like a cute little tyrant. I'm going to name him Tyrannus. <laughs> or was this maybe his students? His students said, man, that guy is a tyrant. We're going to call this guy Tyrannus. And that became his nickname. We don't know for sure how that happened. But he, the hall of Tyrannus, this guy, there's no indication he's a Christian. He's some kind of philosopher, teacher who has this nice, prestigious hall or school uh, in the area where people would come and hear him lecture. And somehow or another, Paul is enabled to speak at this particular place. And I, I have to tell you, Paul wrote the letter of 1 Corinthians during these two years while he's lecturing at the hall of Tyrannus. And just listen to this cross-reference written at the same time, 1 Corinthians 16, 8 and 9, Paul says, I will stay in Ephesus. So he's clearly writing this letter from Ephesus, right? I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. Why, Paul? For a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. I think he's talking about the, the, the Hall of Tyrannus. I think he's saying this unbelievable opportunity happened. So from what we can tell, we, archaeologists are not certain of which, you know, which ruins in Ephesus are the Hall of Tyrannus. It's very hard to know, uh, although the word Tyrannus has been found in, ancient, uh, in the ancient site of Ephesus. Wherever it was there in that city, it would have given some level of prestige to what Paul was doing, some kind of clout to it, because this is in kind of a nice place. It kind of has this idea of it being uh, this academic setting, and so it gave Paul a prominent place to preach the gospel, and in an unheard of way, it lasted for two years. Now, I don't know about you. You may have a footnote here uh, in verse 9. At the bottom of your page or somewhere in your margin, it may say, some manuscripts add the words, he taught from the fifth hour to the tenth hour, that is from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. Now, I really don't need to get into the technicalities of this. I'll just tell you this. Virtually every scholar does not think that those are original words to the, to the book of Acts. That's why almost, I don't know any translation that includes them. Maybe there is one, but no one really includes them in the translation. But why are they there? Well, the Western text, one of the, one of the less reliable texts of Acts, has these words included and very likely, almost unanimously here, although it's probably not original to Acts, it is also probably conveying something accurate to what actually happened. It may have passed down by word of mouth or something, but this is the kind of thing that makes perfect sense. Let me try to explain, because this was pretty amazing. Paul gets this lecture hall from, let's say that the time is right, 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. That probably is a good guess as to when this happened. 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. Why would that be a time in which the lecture hall was open? Well, you look at this, and it, well, culturally speaking, this is actually pretty common. In Ephesus, 
really in the Mediterranean world in general, you would get up early with the sun, and while it is still the cool of the day, you would work really hard in the morning, in the marketplace, working, selling, buying goods, whatever. You'd be in the agora, the marketplace, working really hard. And around 11 a.m., you might go get lunch, and then you'd take almost a siesta type of thing. You, you would kind of relax. And from 11 a.m. to about 4 p.m., people generally took a break during the heat of the day, and then they picked things back up in the evening and got really serious again with their trade. They went back to work in the evening, and there was this open, vacant period in the middle of the day. And so, very likely, Tyrannus did not use the hall during those hours. It makes perfect sense. It's during siesta time. Nobody wants to come here a lecture between 11 and 4 p.m. This is when you go take your lunch and take your break. You go take your nap. You go rest. You don't worry about work. And so Paul asks, hey, maybe he pays a price or maybe he just asks permission. He gets permission to use this lecture hall in the middle of the day during these five hours, very likely. And uh, let's just think about this for a moment. I can't guarantee you, it says he did this daily. Did, did Paul rest on Saturday? Perhaps. Uh, we could argue about Sabbatarian law some other time. Maybe to the Jews, to the Jews, he became, he did not, he didn't violate the Sabbath. I don't know. Let's just say he took Sabbath off Saturday. Let's just say he took Sabbath off. That's six days a week. He's in the hall of Tyrannus. It says teaching daily from, let's assume these hours are approximately correct, from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. Now, just think about this for a moment. That means Paul was preaching the Bible, teaching, dialoguing, discussing, debating, persuading, back to preaching and teaching, not for one hour a day, not for one hour a week. But for five hours a day, six days a week at least, maybe seven days a week, but at least six days a week, he is doing this. Now, what that means is, and I'm not good with math, but that's 30 hours a week, right? Five hours, six days, six times five, that's 30 hours a week he's just teaching the Bible. And this is to new Christians, his disciples, also to non-Christians, no doubt Jews and Gentiles who are coming to listen. And this goes on for two years. I typed it into my little calculator on my phone. We're talking here about 3,000 hours of Bible teaching in two years. That blew me away this week to stop and think about that. It says he taught daily, and if the hours are about correct, that's five hours a day, six days a week for two straight years. Paul taught over 3,000 hours of Bible in two years. Now, I just try to figure, I'm just trying to think about this. I want, I will look at our podcast to see how many, uh, how many audio recordings we have on there. We have over, I think, 600. Some of those are 15 minutes long. Some are 45. Some are an hour. But I kind of, you know, giving the best benefit of the doubt, we have maybe not quite 400 hours worth of content that we've put out in six years with all the elders teaching at different times and in different places. We have maybe less than 400 hours of content on our podcast after six years. And I, I think we do a lot of teaching in our church. That's 400 hours, six years. That's not terrible. Paul did that in the first four months at Ephesus. That blew my mind to think about. So, he preached five hours a day, six days a week for two straight years, over 3,000 hours worth of teaching. And you think, well, that's got to be, that's got to exhaust people. I mean, who is going to do this? Well, then we're also told in Acts 20, just flip over to Acts 20 because Paul's talking about his time in Ephesus a little later when he calls the Ephesian elders. That was not all he did. Look at 2020. Paul tells them, he says, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public, that would be the hall of Tyrannus, right? Teaching you in public at Ephesus, in public, and from what? House to house. So this means Paul preaches, he, so in the morning Paul wakes up at sunrise or before sunrise. He may pray, whatever he may do in the early morning, then he starts working on tents, 
No doubt, right? He's got his sweat rags. We're going to talk about his apron and his handkerchief. So he's, he's got his sweat rags for his work with tents. So early in the morning around sunrise, he may have had devotions in the morning, prayed, whatever he may have done. Then he's working on tents. Early in the morning until about 11 o'clock, Paul finishes his work on tents so he can pay his, for his food, maybe pay to rent this hall of Tyrannus. Then what does he do? He goes over to the hall of Tyrannus and he speaks and teaches and discusses and debates the Bible for the next five hours every single day. After that's over, he goes back and perhaps he works on tents in the evening like many other people would do, working their job. And then in the, in the late evening, maybe around dinner time or after dinner, he is frequently where? At, in the homes of the members of this church or non-Christian homes. He's being invited. He's going from house to house. So Paul's not done teaching after five hours. Paul goes and he, what? He teaches two or three more hours in the evening at someone's home, maybe over dinner. People invite him over. Paul, we want to know more about that point you made about Isaiah. Come talk to us about it. We're interested. We're intrigued. My brother is showing interest in Christ. Come talk to us. And Paul's going from home to home in this city of over 200,000 people, and Paul is there in the evenings teaching late. Uh, one old scholar, I think F.F. F. Bruce mentions this in his commentary, one uh, ancient writer says, sometimes in Ephesus, people stayed awake until one in the morning, the fifth hour into the night, one in the morning, because they took that nap in the middle of the afternoon, apparently and they could stay up late working. And so Paul may have worked late into the night uh, with his evangelism there. Look at, if you're in Acts 20, look down at verse 26 and 27. Does this verse, remember, he's talking here later to the Ephesian elders from the same church. Look at Acts 20, verses 26 and 27. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. That is no joke or exaggeration. Paul taught… Can you imagine what Paul was able to cover in those two years? He was no doubt covering all matters of uh, salvation and justification. And you know, it's one thing to read Romans. It's another thing to sit down with the author of Romans for two years, five hours a day, and ask him questions about what Romans pick your chapter, means. Like, Paul, explain that a little bit more thoroughly. Explain what you meant here. I know he hadn't written Romans yet. He writes Romans in a couple of years. But that content would have been what he taught. And they're able to delve in and talk to him over dinner about the content of what Paul is preaching. And Paul is working through these things carefully and for a long period of time. And look at, we're back at Acts 19. Acts 19. Look at verse 10. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now, if you look at the screen here, I've got a map that I showed before. Let me try to, uh, to show you something here. So, the, the church that Paul is in right here is Ephesus. I'll circ- okay, hang on one second. I'll circle this right here. That's where Paul is right now. Paul stays camped right there for a total of three years. He's at the synagogue for three months. Then he was in the Hall of Tyrannus for two years, and then we're told he stayed a time after that, which Paul later refers to as a three-year period. So three years, camped out in that one spot. Now, do you see the, the red and yellow churches around where that is? The, now those, red, those red dots there on the screen, you might recognize Smyrna, Pergamum, uh, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. Those are the seven churches that Revelation was written to. Remember, Revelation 2 and 3 addresses each of those seven churches. Now, there is absolutely no indication at all that Paul planted any of those churches personally. Neither did he plant the church at Colossae. This is so astonishing to me. Paul plants his home base in Ephesus, teaching all day, every day to everybody who will listen. And what starts happening? People start getting converted. Lots of people start getting converted. And you know what they do? They go back home. Because Ephesus was a hub. It was a major trading city. It was a large city. It was the dominant city of Asia Minor, that whole co- western coast of Turkey. That was the mod- it was a dominant city, that whole area. So it's kind of like Athens and Atlanta. 
Everybody in Athens at some point goes to Atlanta. Not everybody in Atlanta comes to Athens, okay? Which is probably a good thing. Okay, that would, that would be kind of crazy. But I, I think Ephesus is Atlanta. It's the major city. Athens is like one of these cities around it. Everyone flocks to Ephesus. Not everyone in Ephesus flocks everywhere else, if you follow that. So Paul has people coming in for all kinds of reasons from all those surrounding cities. They hear Paul. They get converted. And what do they do? They go back and plant these churches. And the, the likelihood that all seven churches of Revelation were planted during these two years is extremely high. Extremely. It's just astonishing. Paul may be responsible indirectly for the starting of nine churches or so during these two years. And one commentator after another said this may be the, this is likely the most fruitful period of Paul's ministry in his entire life. I didn't know that. That was new to me as of two weeks ago. I just learned that. It's amazing to me. It's part of Paul's life I never even really understood. This may have been the most fruitful two years, three years of his entire ministry because he is unhindered, a wide door. He said is open wide in Ephesus, and I'm just going for it. I'm preaching all day, every day, and people are reacting. Let me, let me show you one snippet of, an, of a story connected to all this. So I'll circle another church right over here. If you see uh, Colosseum and Laodicea, they're about a hundred and so miles apart. Let me zoom in on this in a map. Okay, so here's Ephesus over here on the left. Let me use a different color right there. And you've got three cities over here on this side of the screen, Laodicea, Hierapolis, and Colossae that are all a triangular shape about 10 miles from each other, 120 miles inland. Okay, now hold on. Hold your spot here in Acts and turn to the right to Colossians. The first time I ever heard about this was when Scott was preaching maybe three years ago, and I tucked it away in the back of my mind. I said, I want to go investigate that, and I finally got a chance to do it. So I learned this first from Scott, but I got to investigate it further, and this is really encouraging. Colossians 1, one of these guys who came to Ephesus, was converted, and went back home and planted churches is a guy mentioned by name in Colossians. His name was Epaphras. I just love this section. Look at Colossians 1. Uh, let me start in verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Where did they hear it from? Just as you learned it, not from Paul, from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So Epaphras planted that church in Colossae. But look at chapter 2 of Colossians verse 1. Paul says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and those in Laodicea. You see on the map, it's right next door. So Paul has a struggle for the Colossians and the Laodiceans right next door. And into verse 1, for all who have not seen me face to face. Do you hear that? Paul, we have no, Paul never at this point had not visited any of those churches. Paul, where was he? He was 120 miles away at Ephesus, preaching his heart out. He did not get to go visit Colossae. Paul did not plant that church. What happened? Well, look at chapter 4 of Colossians. Chapter 4, the greeting sections, which, which can sometimes we can overlook some of these, but look at verse 12 of chapter 4 of Colossians. Paul mentions him again. Epaphras who is one of you, so he's a Colossian, he's from Colossae, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that's powerful, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God, for I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you, that's the Colossians, and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Now, do you see at the screen? The conservative scholars, I mean, it just it's not, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to put this together. 
You get what's happening? Epaphras travels from Colossae's hometown 120 miles toward the coast to Ephesus for some reason. Maybe business? Who knows? He's not a Christian. He gets there, and he gets somehow brought into the hall of Tyrannus. He hears Paul, this passionate preacher, going on and on for five hours a day, and he listens, and the Spirit begins to soften his heart, and Epaphras is radically converted. He is repenting of his sin. He's trusting in the finished work of Jesus. He is a new man, a new creation in Christ. The old has gone. The new has come. And no doubt he spends maybe weeks, maybe months with Paul as Paul disciples him and teaches him, and he gets into the deep things of God. He goes deep into the Word. Paul says, I did not withhold from you the whole counsel of God. So Epaphras hears this great rich, nonstop Bible teaching day in, day out, week after week, and he is discipled. He's growing. He's strengthening. And guess what? He's now burdened for his home church. Paul never went to Colossae, at least not at this point. He may have gone later. And so what does he do? He travels upriver to the Lycus River Valley, and he goes back to his home, and he starts preaching the gospel in Colossae, this brand-new baby Christian. Couldn't have been more than a few months old, right? This happened in two years, the whole thing. So he's newly converted. He's got the gospel. He's preaching it to his friends. He's preaching it to his family, his people he works with, and people start getting converted. Epaphras starts a church in Colossae, and in all likelihood, you see here, Paul says he worked hard not just in Colossae. He also worked hard for these other two cities. What does that mean? I think he planted churches in all three cities, including one of the ones Revelation was written to, Laodicea. So Epaphras is busy. He goes from one city to another within 10 miles of each other, and he plants a church very likely in all three cities working so hard. So how does Paul reach, to go back to the main slide here, how in the world can Paul be camped out here for three years, not go anywhere else, and plant churches all in that area right there? The answer is what you're hearing. If one guy planted perhaps three churches back home, these other churches, no doubt, were started in very similar ways. We don't get details, but you can just imagine someone comes from Thyatira, converted, they go back, and they start a church, and on and on it goes. So, do you see how fruitful these years were for Paul? Paul says, I can't go anywhere right now. The door is too wide, it is too far open, and the Lord is, is doing great and wonderful things uh, through Paul at this time. Let me also say this time was not without its trials. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, by the way, I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus. Do you remember that strange phrase? He's not talking about gladiatorial games here, I don't think. He's talking about the Ephesian unbelievers who were trying to kill him, persecute him. Uh, he says that some of the Jews tried to attack him, and he was, there was plots at numerous times. So Paul says, hey, I, I, was, I, was, I was fighting wild beasts at Ephesus. And then he says, if the resurrection's not true, why am I doing this to myself? I die every day. I am in danger every hour. And he's writing that from Ephesus, from this city. Flip with me another time to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. As you are turning to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, let me, let me try to confuse you real quick about the Corinthian letters. Are you ready? You've got to listen carefully. Strictly speaking, we have what we call 1 and 2 Corinthians. But if we're going to get technical, it's not quite the right labels to give them. Paul wrote a letter to the Corinthians before 1 Corinthians that he talks about in 1 Corinthians. So that's really 1 Corinthians. We don't have 1 Corinthians. That, that, that first letter he wrote, we don't have. The Lord did not give that to us. The second letter he wrote to the Corinthians is called 1 Corinthians to us, but it's really the second letter he wrote to them. Then he wrote a third letter to the Corinthians, which he called a painful, tearful letter in 2 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5. We don't have that one either. That's 3 Corinthians. And what we call 2 Corinthians is actually 4 Corinthians. Is everybody on the same page here? So we call 1 Corinthians what is really the second letter, and we call 2 Corinthians what's actually the 
fourth letter he wrote, and we don't have the first and third letters. The Lord in His sovereignty did not choose to give them to us, but we have the two. So, the first three letters he wrote to the Corinthians, he wrote during his two years in Ephesus, during his three years in Ephesus. And right after he left, he went north and he wrote 2 Corinthians just a few months after he left Ephesus. And look at 2 Corinthians 1, the God of all comfort. Let's look at the context of this wonderful passage that many of us know. 2 Corinthians uh, 1 uh, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves have been comforted by God. Now look at verse 8. What's the comfort? What's the affliction? For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. That's where Ephesus is. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. Next Sunday, we will look at the event He may be referring to here, which is the riot at Ephesus where they try to have Paul put to death. That's next Sunday. It's quite a story, but we will not go to that right now. But you'll see, Paul was not just prospering, he was also experiencing great diversity during this time. Let's flip back to Acts 19. Now to our second point, remarkable miracles. So point number one was relentless teaching. Point number two, remarkable miracles. Verse 11 of Acts 19, and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and a- or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and evil spirits came out of them. Now, just, just stop here. Let us not misunderstand something about Paul's ministry. Paul was not always able to heal. Do you, do you know this about Paul? In, in sec- I think it's 2nd or 1st Timothy. He says, I left Trophimus ill at Miletus. So if Paul could always heal, why did he leave a guy sick at the port city of Miletus? Or there's other examples where he tells Timothy, drink a little wine for your stomach ailment. Paul doesn't just magically or miraculously heal him. He says, here, here take, take some, t- drink a little wine for your stomach ailment, and on and on. There are multiple examples of Paul being unable to heal. But this was an extraordinary time of the miraculous in Paul's life. It reminds me of Jesus, the woman touching the hem of His garment with the issue of blood in Luke 8 and being healed. Uh, it may also remind you of Acts 5. Peter's shadow healing people in Jerusalem. Well, now the same thing is happening in Ephesus. Why? Why is the Lord doing such extraordinary miracles in Ephesus? Well, this was a city that was big into the occult and into magic and into the demonic forces. So, uh, let's, let's read here what happens next. You know what? Let me add one other thing. If you ever watch Christian television, I'm sorry. But if you do, on TBN, uh, you know, it used to be back in the day, if I couldn't sleep, I would turn it on just because, you know, I wanted to be mad before I went to sleep. And uh, there, I, I'm just going to name one guy because, you know, it's just you can't help but name somebody sometime. Peter Popoff was his name. And uh, Peter Popoff uh, had this thing where he, you, can, you can still see this guy occasionally on TV, I think to this day. He would say, okay, here's the deal. I've got both like miracle spring water. I've also got things that I've blessed or prayed over or whatever, and I'm going to mail them to you. And you can always send me a check if you want, but I'll, I'll mail them to you. And if you touch them or if you put them on you, or one person said he put it on his wallet and then he got a bunch of financial blessing later. If you take this blessed item that he prayed over or touched and you get it from the mail and you touch it against things in your life, it will remove curses. It will bring down blessing. Well, um, 
Then Peter Popoff was doing a crusade, and I think it was ABC News or somebody came in secretly, and uh, he was he was able to sort of name people in the audience and just kind of, he knew people's names he had never met, and he could tell what was wrong with you, and he could claim to heal you on the spot, and people were like, this is incredible. And so, uh, Dateline NBC or whoever, somebody came in with a radio, uh, with a little radio trying to find a frequency, and they found in the back, backstage, Peter Popoff's wife had all the information about the people out there at the crusade. She was reading it to him, like, Colin is sitting on the fifth row on aisle H or whatever, you know, and he would say, on the fifth row, Colin, are you, Colin, yeah, you've got a problem with your eyes. Yes, I do. And they'd fill out a form before they came in. Anyways, he got, he got big trouble. And as Don Carson said about him, Peter Popoff popped off at that point. Okay, he got, he got disproven at that point. He was gone. But my point is, please don't for one second let anyone deceive you with verses like this saying, look, they took Paul's sweat rag, his handkerchief, his apron he was using when he was making tents, and they took it and they put it against people and they healed people. This is an extraordinary experience even in Paul's life. This is not something we should expect to happen right now today, okay? So please, anyone who tells you they're going to sell you their handkerchief and uh, it's going to bless you, just think carefully <laughs> before, before doing that. So this is an extraordinary thing even in Paul's life, but some people begin to want to imitate it. Look at verse 13. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, just let those words go over your head one more time. You just think, itinerant, so they're moving from place to place, Jewish exorcists, okay, undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of the Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? Now, I can't help but just think there's an element of, of sort of humor here in this particular moment. They, they hear Paul has got this incredible miraculous power, and they want the miraculous power. That's how they make their living. They're itinerant Jewish exorcists. And so they say, okay, we, we hear that the name of Jesus is very powerful. Let's go try it out, like a magical incantation. We, we use the name, and we can cast a spell. We can, we can cast out a demon. So they go into a room where a demon-possessed person is, and they say, in the name of Jesus, the, the one Paul preaches, we adjure you to come out of this person. And the demon turns and says, well, obviously, we, as, we, we demons, we know about Jesus. We know Jesus. Oh, man, we know about Him. He's our Creator. And we've even heard of Paul. I think that is awesome. They recognize the name Paul. I mean, I hope, don't you want to be the kind of person that even the demons are aware of the impact that the Lord is making through your life in the world? Well, yeah, we, we know about Paul too, but who are you guys? We never heard of the sons of Sceva. And they jump on these guys, and all seven of them get beaten naked and bloodied and take off running through the city of Ephesus. Local news that evening, uh, Alistair Begg. Alistair Begg made me laugh out loud, I think. He said, they're the seven streakers of Sceva, that's what they should have been called. He said, you look out your window, these seven guys are bloodied and bruised, and they've got no clothes on, they're racing out of this house down the streets of the city of Ephesus. People are going, what is going on here? Hey, evening news, the seven Jewish itinerant exorcists, beaten, bloodied, and naked, and have taken off down the road, misusing the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches. Well, this actually doesn't create so much laughter as it creates tremendous fear in the area. Look at verse 17. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus. I am sure they loved the fact that this became uh, well known to the 200,000 people living in their city, the seven sons. This became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. So this is concluding point number two. There have been remarkable miracles, and we are being shown that Jesus' name is greater than uh, than any other, and that we are not to, listen, we're not to use Jesus' name in vain. 
That's the sin, isn't it? They don't know Jesus in a saving way, but they're using His name to get some earthly benefit, not actually knowing and loving Jesus. They are taking His name in vain. They're using His name in vain, and Jesus will not be manipulated. He's not able to be manipulated. You cannot manipulate Jesus. One, someone mentioned in Luke 8, the, the, remember the Gerasene demoniac coming out from the sea of, near the Sea of Galilee that Jesus meets when He lands on the shore? That man is in almost the opposite condition. He arrives possessed by demons, naked, out of his mind, trying to harm himself. And by the time Jesus casts the demon out, uh, you know, uh, rightly, then the man is clothed and in his right mind. It's almost the opposite kind of story going on with Jesus in Luke 8. But now we must move on to our last point, radical repentance. So fear has fallen on the whole area. The name of the Lord Jesus is extolled and glorified. What is the effect on others, on, on those around? Verse 18. Radical repentance. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Now, this may sound very foreign to us. Magical books? These would have been ancient books that have all kinds of incantations written down, names of spirits written down, things that you would use as part of the occult to try to get power over the spirits of the world, and they were unbelievably valuable. I mean, 50,000 pieces of silver, that's the piece of silver, I think it's a drachma, that's a day's wages. And when you put this together, it's very hard to give a guess, but I mean, we're talking, these were worth maybe $5 million, one person guesses. I mean, we're, we're talking an extraordinarily costly thing. They burned their own magic books to a price of maybe $5 million in modern American money. This is radical repentance. What, what's happening? Let's read the verses one more time. Verse 18, also many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. Listen, these are probably people who've already professed to be Christians. Maybe some of them are already Christians, but they're not, they haven't fully let, let go of everything in their past. And so when they see what happens to the sons of Sceva and Paul's miraculous works, they are struck with deep fear. It's similar to when Ananias and Sapphira lie about their giving, and the Lord, the Holy Spirit strikes them both dead, and it says great fear filled the, the place, and people began to, to elevate the name of Jesus in Acts 5, very similar. But what happens here is people who called themselves Christians, and maybe some of them were Christians, they were still trying to hold on to a little bit of this background, their past. They didn't want to give it all up, maybe. And they start coming forward, confessing and divulging their practices before everybody. They burn their books in the sight of all. Now, my guess is for virtually everyone in this room, this is not going to be your struggle, holding on to these kinds of books. Maybe, maybe some, you know, it's not impossible that one or two people have been a part of the occult in the past. That's not impossible. But for most of us, this is probably going to feel like, how do I relate? How do I apply this to my life? Well, think about this. A sign that the glory of the Lord is at work and that health is happening in a local church is that people are not afraid to confess where they're really struggling and failing, to bring what is in the dark out to the light. Psalm 32 is, is one of the great places. In fact, let's just close there. You, you can leave Acts and let's turn to Psalm 32 as our closing passage. I just, I cannot improve upon what is said here. Psalm 32. Listen carefully to these words. 
Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, literally lifted off, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent about my sin, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Now just stop here. Do you know what that is like? To be holding on to secret sin? To say, I'm not going to bring my magic books out to the public. I I want to hold on to them. It's a safety blanket. In case something goes wrong and I want to get control back over the spiritual world that I grew up doing, I I always can fall back on that. I've got got my sins sort of tucked away, and if I need them, I can go to them. It's kind of a safety blanket. If, if I, I'm with Jesus, I mean, I'm all about Jesus, but if He's not really coming through for me, I can go back to my former practices and find fulfillment. I can find what I've been looking for, and I'm kind of tucked that away. I've got, I've got it locked away in the cellar. I don't want to get rid of it. I don't want to burn it. I don't want to destroy it. I don't want to burn the bridge so I can't go back. But th- these believers back in, Eph- in Ephesus, they go, listen, we're not keeping this as a, as, a, as a safety blanket back here. We know this is destructive. This is going to destroy me. We're bringing it forward, even though it's worth millions of dollars, and we're going to burn it so there's no way back. This is not burning someone else's books. This is not kind of like what you think of as like stereotypical book burning. This is burning their own books so that they cannot go back to these arts or they could have sold them and made some money, but then what? Other people would be in the magic arts. They don't want anybody going back across this bridge. So they burn the bridge. They go put it in public and they burn it down because when we keep silent about our sin, we waste away. Tell me this is not your experience. When we hide it away, we rot internally. Our bones waste away. Day and night, God's hand is on us. Our strength, our spiritual strength goes away. We got nothing left. But then here's the answer, verse 5. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Now, now, here, here. You got two options with your sin, because all of us have sin. All of us have dark, embarrassing sin. Everybody in this room does. We've got dark and embarrassing sin. Here are your two options in this text. Number one, you can cover it up. Verse five, he says, I I did not cover it up, but you could try to cover it up. Or verse one, you could let God cover it. Those are your two options. David says, I tried to cover my sin and I rotted away, but then finally I let it out. I opened it. I confessed it. I did not try to cover it. I exposed it before the Lord and before trusted friends, perhaps. I exposed it. I confessed it. And then the Lord covered it up. He took it away. So here's what you're stuck with. We've all got sin. Am I going to cover it up and try my best to hide it away? Or am I going to expose it to the light, confess it before God and others, and see God take it away? See God covered up with 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 the blood of Christ taking all of our sins away. Verse 6, therefore let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curved with bit and bridle or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord, and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray for any of us in this room who has sin tucked away, hidden away as a safety blanket, as as sort of something we might turn to. 
God, I pray that you would give us a profound desire not to try to domesticate our sin, hide our sin, give us a longing to bring it to the light, to confess it, to throw it far away from us, and that you yourself would cover it with the blood of Christ, that you would lift it off of us, and that we would experience the blessedness of the man who has no sin counted against him and only the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. And so, God, help us to live in the freedom and the joy and the glory of radical repentance. Help us to, if there's something that we we need to get rid of entirely, help us to burn it in that sense. Help us to just get rid of it entirely if it needs to happen in our life. And help us to be freed from sin. There is no freedom in sin. There's only freedom from the enslaving nature of our sin. So, please free us and help us to trust fully in the finished work of Jesus. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.